Amen. Hey, uh, parents, this sermon has a parent warning that's in your ES news that uh, hopefully you've, you've read. Um, this message really is a continuation of last week's message. We're talking about sex. And right now you just need to hear me, this message is for you, okay? Um, so no matter who you are, if during the message you think, hey, this message is about me, you're listening to a lie, it's for you, all right? And the evil one lies to us about our sexuality all the time. I don't, I don't want you to listen to him. I don't want you to listen simply to your own past, but listen to the, listen to the word of God. So let's pray, all right? Father, I thank you for the people in this room that you have given absolutely everything for. And so I claim the blood of your covenant over this sanctuary, over these people, over our lives. Lord God, wherever the evil one would seek to condemn us or shame us, Lord, we claim that blood of the covenant. Lord, wherever actions in the past would seek to tell us um, who we are that's contrary to what you tell us about ourselves, we claim the blood of your covenant over that. Lord, wherever our will is not in conjunction with your will, we claim the blood of the covenant over that because the blood of the covenant is your will. And I thank you, Lord God, that all of us have broken wills, and yet you are filling us with your will, and so we will ever praise you for the fact that you are salvation, Lord Jesus. And so may we worship you this morning in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. I grew up in the Cold War. It was a Cold War abroad and Cold War at South Elementary School. Along with Field Day, the very worst day was Valentine's Day. And it was worse than the Cuban Missile Crisis. For an entire week before that dreaded day, we would each frantically prepare these Valentine receptacles uh, covered in crayon and construction paper and glitter, bright plumage to attract Valentines to your own receptacle. We placed the receptacles around the perimeter of the room and then on Valentine's Day for 10 agonizing minutes we distributed Valentines. I'm sure that some teacher told us that it was all about giving, but we knew it was all about getting Valentines. It was Cold War. So for instance, if you gave a Valentine to some girl and uh, she did not give a Valentine to you, it was a crisis, why? Well, because you had just exposed a weakness that was not reciprocated by an equal and opposite weakness. So, so all at once, she was in a position of power in a Cold War situation. I mean, you might as well just fall at her feet and cry out, I surrender. Please don't flaunt your Valentine receptacle uh, so filled with such a weight of glory. Don't flaunt it over my humble Valentine receptacle. Empty, save for one Cowboy Valentine from Mrs. Black, which says, Howdy, partner. <laughs> I surrender. I'm last. You're first. Head of the class. You know, there should be a law. Every child will receive the exact same number of Valentines. And every Valentine will be exactly the same. Because otherwise, people get hurt people get crucified. And Cold War is all about the balance of, of power. A democracy is a balance of power. Our government is uh, built to maintain a balance of power. Our Declaration of Independence State, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Yet if anything is not self-evident, I would think it, it would be that. I mean, some men are created short. Some men are created tall. Some men are created with a high IQ. Some men are created with a low IQ. If equal means the same, it's certainly not self-evident that all men are created equal. And the founders obviously didn't believe that all men are created equal because they didn't even allow their slaves to vote or their women to vote. And now you may be getting a little bit nervous. It's because I'm messing with the balance of power. 
in a Cold War situation? Well, I think we'd all agree that skin color isn't a difference that runs very deep. However, gender is, is another matter. Well, by the early 1980s, our society had really gone through some changes. In fact, the equal distribution of Valentines was a requirement at my children's elementary school. Even in the 80s, the prevailing view seemed to be that men and women are exactly the same. In fact, you could pick your gender just by changing your plumbing at a clinic down in, in Trinidad. In the church, we worked hard at gender-neutral translations of Scripture. In my denomination, uh, other denominations, we enacted legislation in order to balance the power in ecclesiastical offices. I, I think my very worst day in seminary was one particular day in 1985 in Professor Cecil M. Roebuck's pastoral theology class. He, he was leading a discussion about misogyny and, uh, and gender roles in family and in church society, and I raised my hand and I said something like this. I remember I said, I don't think I hate women. I, I don't think I do. I just don't understand how you reconcile what you're, you're saying right now, but everybody being just the same, with 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 11. And I think I even mentioned our scripture for this morning, Ephesians chapter 5. I was genuinely confused, and, and I honestly just asked the question, but what happens next? What happened next was, was the end of the Cold War, the beginning of World War III. I mean, for about a half an hour, it was seriously about a half an hour, one woman after another woman would stand up in the pastoral theology class and denounce me. And it was clear that they spoke some very real and some, about some very real and, and very legitimate pain. So I want you to hear me. It was legitimate pain. And then this guy stood up who I'm convinced was not in pain. He just wanted a date. And he apologized. He stood up and apologized to all the women in the class that in this day and age, they had to be subjected to someone like me. And then Professor Cecil M. Roebuck just got up and ended the class, and we all left out, went out of the room, and it was the Cold War once again. So I might be an idiot for even attempting to address this text, but let's give it a whirl, okay? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, literally in fear of Christ. Wives, submit. I like Marcus Barth's translation. Subordinate yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Well, since the wife is also the church, that means her husband is also Christ, right? And so she shouldn't obey her earthly husband if it violates her obedience to Christ, her, her ultimate husband, and, and yet Paul still wrote that. Subordinate yourself in, in everything. Next verse. Husbands, Love your wives, imperative tense. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Well, you see, that's not very PC. And it certainly holds potential for an immense amount of abuse and incredible pain, and yet it's clear that Paul seems to think there are differences between men and women, and that those differences might affect roles that we play and how we relate to, to each other. Now, I think that we'd all agree that men and women are different. You all agree on that? Yeah, because otherwise you couldn't point one out, right? I mean, they're different. We're just confused about how they're different and what that means. So, is this the difference? I don't know if you can see that. At the top it says what women see. It's a forest full of trees. 
Below it's what men see. It's a forest full of toilets. Or maybe it's this. You know, women are all about love and men are something else. Or maybe it's this, that, that men are simple and women, women are complex. Or, or maybe it's something like this. Men fill their bellies with beer and women's bellies are filled with, with babies. You know, in this modern age, where strength is not such a critical asset, it seems that there's very little a man can do that a woman can't do. And very much that a woman can do that a man cannot do, like give birth. And yet even in 2013, she, she still needs a man to contribute to the process. And it's very difficult to get the man to contribute to the process against his will. That's just fascinating, but that's kind of how it, how it works. So anyway, what's the difference and what does it mean? Theologian Emil Brunner wrote this. I find this fascinating. He wrote, our sexuality penetrates to the deepest metaphysical ground of our personality. As a result, the physical differences between the man and the woman are a parable of the psychical and spiritual differences of a more ultimate nature. In other words, you can get that, Ruth, that's great. <laughs> okay, you got that, got that theological statement? In other words, this is what Emil Brunner is saying, men have penises and women have vaginas. And the shape of their organs is like the shape of their hearts. And maybe those organs are connected to their hearts. And maybe that's why God cares so much about what you do with those organs, for when you join those organs, you join two hearts. Well, in Ephesians, Paul talks about headship. That's the word and the point that stresses everybody out, headship. We can make all sorts of graphic joy, jokes at this point about headship and, and what it means, but it does have something to do with initiation and penetration and leadership. And its complement must have something to do with invitation and reception and nurture. Well, I really don't know all the details, but we all know there's a difference. You all agreed to that. And any difference means, number one, there is something that you don't have that somebody else does have. And there is something you can't do that somebody else can do. In other words, the difference makes you feel incomplete. And how do you handle that feeling? A few months ago, my 23-year-old daughter Elizabeth and her boyfriend Francisco from Chile, in fact, she's down in Chile, visit him right now. Well, they were watching home movies in our TV room when I heard all of this laughter and, and Elizabeth ran upstairs and got me and she said, Dad, you gotta come down and see this. This explains everything, explains everything. And I'm gonna show it to you. This is our yard back in 19... Uh, 92, okay, my uh, daughter Elizabeth, uh, son John, there's Becky back there, I think she even babysat them sometimes, okay, but this is one day in, in our backyard and you'll notice that the video has been blacked out in places for obvious reasons. You wanna go potty in the grass? Yes. Okay, well pull your pants down and go. Go out there. Okay, can you pull your pants down, John? You know how. Let me see. Oh, good job, John. He's getting, he's a very big boy. So he can go potty by himself, Elizabeth. Look at that. You what? Well, honey, you need, you haven't, you don't know. Pull your pants up, John, quick. That's, we're learning how to go camping. Elizabeth, you don't have a pee-pee, honey. I'm sorry. Uh-oh, we're in trouble. I think she doesn't want us to go pee pee in the yard anymore, okay? John, we'll just do that when we're at special times, okay? When daddy says it's okay, alrighty? You're such a big boy. Elizabeth, honey, you, honey, sweetheart, it won't work for you like that, okay? But we'll teach you how to go pee pee. 
Okay. Yeah, you kind of have, you have special equipment you can do special things with too. You can do. <laughs> I love that face because you know what she's thinking. She's thinking, Daddy, where is it? And how do I get one? <laughs> We had problems with it. She would seriously, potty train, she would stand at the toilet throwing fists, just peeing all over the place. But where is it? How do, how, do I, how do I get one? Well, I suppose, I mean, let's ask that question. How did she get one? She could take one. Now, I'm not trying to be crass, but she could take one Lorena Bobbitt style. Take one. But having taken it, it wouldn't work very well. But, but that is one strategy. Just yank it from the tree. Sigmund Freud argued that all little boys suffer from castration anxiety, fear of being emasculated. He said that all little girls had to deal with penis envy. Oh, you see, maybe he's on to something, but, but I don't think it just works in, in one direction. And, and, now, this is a little bit embarrassing, but we can be honest right here together. But along about seventh grade, I remember this one day, seventh grade, just thinking to myself, gosh, breasts are beautiful. They're good. I wish I had them. If I had them, I'd just stand in front of the mirror staring at them all day long. <laughs> and then I thought, but you know, if, if I had them, maybe I wouldn't enjoy them. I mean, at least not in, in that way, the same way. So, so anyway, how, how could I, how could I know them? Well, I could just take them. You know, men do that. They just take the fruit from the tree. We call it rape. They want to know the good, but they end up knowing the evil. They take life, but no death, and that's a problem. So as a society, how do we handle such a tremendous difference? Well, to avoid castration, rape, open warfare, horrific abuse, we cover it up. We cover the difference. As soon as Adam and Eve yanked the fruit from the tree, they covered it up, their, their difference. They covered the place where they were different from each other. And they hid themselves from God once they realized and saw how they were different from him. We cover it up. And what do we cover? That place where we feel shame. That place where we see that we're incomplete. That place where we are unequal and therefore vulnerable to abuse and pain. That place that is connected to our hearts. That place where diversity can become unity in the very image of the Trinity. That place where two people become one flesh. That place where the groom enters his bride who is his temple and gives her his seed which fills her emptiness with fruit that is life. We cover that place. And God helped Adam and Eve cover that place once they had yanked the fruit from the tree. Remember how he did it? With a sacrifice. I'm guessing it was a lamb. God helps Adam and Eve cover that place. In fact, they're to keep that place covered in this fallen world, keep it covered, except in the sanctuary of the covenant. So anyway, how do we handle the difference? Well, we can deny the difference, we can repress the difference, or Take the difference, like you take forbidden fruit from some tree, or perhaps there's another way to overcome the difference. Henry Kissinger, uh, who you know was the great negotiator and statesman uh, during the Cold War, Henry Kissinger once said something I think is rather profound. He said, I'm convinced that no one will win the war between the sexes, for there is far too much fraternizing with the enemy, <laughs> that's, that's so true. 
I mean, uh, many of my greatest wars have been with this female named Susan. And we'll start fighting over things that inevitably have to do with our gender, like whether or not our son should go pee-pee in, in the backyard. But at times, I mean, at times I'll really get offended at the difference. We'll, we'll go to war and, and then the war will grow cold. And yet along about the third day, I'll find myself just overwhelmed with this intense desire to go fraternize with the enemy. And then, not only do our gender differences appear to be less of a problem, those differences actually become the attraction. Did you get that? Listen closely. The very thing that offended me becomes the very thing that attracts me, and I fraternize. You you read the Gospels, you realize that Jesus did an awful lot of fraternizing with the enemy. Not the evil one, but evil people. Us. And what's the thing that offends him? Our sin. And what's the thing that attracts him? Our shame, our naked shame, surrendered shame. It hurts him that we take his life on the tree. And yet it delights him to give his life on the tree. He wants us to receive his life on the tree. He says, I I give it to you. Take and eat, take and drink. It's his body and blood, his life that completes us in the image of God. We try to take it but we can only receive it by grace, through faith, and faith is trust. Well, anyway, Elizabeth pointed at the TV laughing and she said, Dad, this explains everything! As she sat on the couch, fraternizing with the enemy. You know, I'm kinda hoping that Francisco is the one And if he is, well, there won't be anything left for Elizabeth to envy. Well, now that is an awful lot to think about. And maybe that's why God made you male, or maybe why he made you female. So you'd spend a lifetime thinking about it, not just thinking about it, feeling it, longing for it, uh, chewing on on it, wrestling with it. Whether, Whether you like your gender or you don't like your gender, whether you're married or you're single. You know the guy writing this is single. Paul's single. Jesus was single. And yet none of us will remain single. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2 and says it all refers to Christ, his bride, uh, and his bride, the church. And, And just think about that, because it was the church that took his life on the cross. And it was for the church that he gave his life on the cross. It's there that our warfare is ended. But the warfare began. Where did the warfare begin? The warfare began in Genesis chapter 3 when Eve tried to take the good from the tree, Genesis 3. But God divided Adam and made Adam male and female where? In Genesis chapter 2. So that means God prepared those warm bodies before the Cold War even began. Theologians call that superlapsarianism, but but you just think about this. He prepared the warm bodies before the Cold War even began. You know, as we preached last time, uh, and I hope you got this, Adam means humanity, and Adam was one. Adam was he and she, but Adam didn't recognize his helper, his helper who is God. So, so God, 
takes one side of Adam and fashions Eve and tells Adam to cleave to Eve in the hope that all humanity would what? Cleave to him, our helper. God is our our helper. God is salvation, made fit for us on a tree called the cross. God is Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate Adam, and we are his bride. The Bible ends with this wedding feast, your wedding feast, and therefore two persons shall become one flesh. And therefore sexuality in marriage is communion in the sanctuary of a covenant. And therefore your sexuality is a sign pointing to your consummated relationship with Christ in glory and perhaps even your relationship with all in glory because he will be in all. And all will be one body. And so of course Satan attacks your sex life. Of course he attacks your sex life. Because if you believe a lie about sex, your heart believes a lie about God, a lie about love. And yet even then, God is, is still telling the story. Even when you believe the lie, he's telling the story. Maybe even especially then he's telling the story. For then you truly see that you need a helper to meet you in that place of shame and fill it with mercy, bearing the fruit that is life. And so I hope you see good sex and a good marriage is to be a picture of heaven. And how a person seeks the one reality is a picture of how a person is to seek the other reality. And nothing is is wasted. So, So all the yearning, all the waiting, all the longing, all the pain, and all the hope prepares you for your final destination, whether you're single like Paul or married like Peter, whether your desires have been twisted like David's or are as pure and noble as the Virgin Mary's. Rejoice, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her that is married, says the Lord. Fear not, your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. So anyway, warm bodies in this cold war tell the story of Christ and his church. And Paul informs us that men play a certain role in that drama, and women play another role in that same drama. Now, as soon as you try to define those roles with a book of rules or a list of laws, the Bible seems to violate the rule and and, and break the law. And you notice that Paul did not tell us who it is that's supposed to take out the trash who it is that's supposed to do the dishes, who it is that's supposed to make the most amount of money. And when he gets around to defining headship, he does it with a story that you know. It is clear that some things are cultural. So in one place, in in one town, he'll tell women not to speak in church, but to ask their husbands when they get home. And yet he expects them to pray and prophesy in church. I think maybe in the same town. And apparently in one place, he he, hears several uh, scholars debate this. He expects them to lead the church. In Corinthians, he writes this, judge for yourselves. Does not nature teach you that man should have short hair? Judge for yourselves. Okay, judge for myself. No, I don't think nature teaches me that. And in fact, um, uh, Samson had long hair because God commanded it to be so. Well, you see, in Corinthians, he was writing to Greeks and Romans, not to Jews. Paul was uh, getting at the unchanging story as it related to Roman culture. He was not dictating hairstyles for all times and all places. So clearly, some things are cultural and some things are universal. In 1 Timothy, he writes this, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing. Well, every Adam has been deceived, right? Except one. And he's talking about that one, the eschatos, Adam. And we are all saved through childbearing. God said it, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. Christ is Adam and we are his bride. Jesus even said, we're his mother when we do the will of the Father, giving birth to him. 
Well, anyway, men play one role in that drama and women play another. And, and if you're a woman, you might say, well, that's a bad deal. You're saying men are Jesus? No! I'm saying they're supposed to be like Jesus. Sometimes I preach and I think, wow, it must be just such a privilege to be a woman. I mean, something in her is made to receive the groom and experience Jesus. You know, in the Gospels, it's fascinating. Go back and look, look through them, but it's like all the men don't get it. They don't get Jesus. And all the women do. It's fascinating. Sometimes I preach and I think, it's an honor to, to be a woman. Sometimes I preach and I think it's an honor to be a man, to imitate Jesus and share in the fellowship of his suffering. In other words, it's a privilege to be feminine and it's a privilege to be masculine and yet it, on a deeper level, we're all feminine, aren't we? For we're all his bride. And yet we're all masculine because we're all his body. In Galatians, Paul writes this, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And maybe that's why Jesus said, in the age to come, they will neither marry nor will be they be, be given in marriage. Maybe that's because everyone is married. One flesh, one body. I mean, we are going to a wedding banquet, right? Heaven is a wedding banquet, right? And now listen to Paul in verse 28. Husbands, love your wives as your own body. You know, Paul has already told us that we're all part of one body and Christ is the head. Maybe that body starts coming together in my marriage, but that's only the beginning. But whatever the case, my wife is my own body. Just like Adam said, it's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She is me and me is she. He wants she because she is me. He, Adam, his own body. So in seventh grade, I realized breasts are good and I want some. And of course I did. They're my own body. And on May 28th, 1983, I got some. Now, I let Susan wear them most of the time, okay? But that's my body. And not just them. Her feet. Her hands. Her eyes. Her heart. Her, her gifts. You know, sometimes when she aches, I think I kind of start to ache. When she feels good, I, I feel better. I wanted my own body. Does Jesus have a body? And of course, two-year-old Elizabeth was frustrated and confused, according to Paul. And the book of, of Genesis, why? Because she was just realized, she came to the realization that she was missing part of her own body. And how's she gonna get it back? If she, if she marries Francisco, she, she will get it back and the two shall become one flesh. And if she ever divorces Francisco, well, it's not just severing that part, it's severing her heart. And maybe that's why God just hates divorce. The two shall become one flesh, Paul says. Flesh. One flesh. And that's really fascinating to me. Because usually Paul talks about flesh as if it's a bad thing. But here he talks about it as if it's a good thing. And so maybe the problem with flesh is not its physicality, but it's isolation. I mean, my flesh only feels its own pain and its own pleasure. So I eat a cheeseburger and you do not taste it. You eat a cheeseburger and I do not taste it. But in the sacrament of the covenant and in intimate communion, when two become one flesh, there is this moment where her pleasure like actually becomes 
my pleasure. Like she eats the cheeseburger and I taste it. And it's ecstasy. And it refers to Christ and his church. And get this, I can't take that moment. I can't take that moment. I have to romance that moment. My will must become her will. And it refers to Christ and his church. Verse 30, we are members of his body. Do you know we're made of him? It began when God spoke his word, breathing his spirit into clay. I am that spirit in clay and I feel incomplete. I feel unfinished, like I need to be finished. I am finished when he gives me his life on the tree. You see, he finishes us, he completes us with himself. I don't complete me. I don't create me. I am completed by he and he is the good. In the garden, Eve saw the good hanging on a tree. And she was tempted to take the good, to make herself good in the image of God. In Jerusalem, Israel saw the good and hung him on a tree. She was trying to take the good and make herself God. She had Jesus' envy. I see the good and try to take the good to make myself good, but I kill the good and make myself bad. I see love and I try to take love to make myself love, but I crucify love and become incapable of love. I see Jesus. If I think I can take Jesus according to the law in the power of my own flesh, if I think that I can create me using him, if I subordinate him to me, I crucify him and create a lie about me, my old man. If, on the other hand, I receive Jesus by grace through faith, if I see he creates me with his own flesh, if I subordinate myself to him, I receive him, even become him, his bride, his body, his, his temple, the new man, and his life becomes my life. His faith is my faith. His hope is my hope. His love is my love. His joy is my joy. His will becomes my will and his ecstasy. And you see, it can only happen through submission. I love what C.S. Lewis wrote in one of his novels. It's advice given to a young bride who resents her husband. He says this, it's not your fault. No one has ever told you. Obedience, humility, obedience is an erotic necessity. In another place, he, he wrote this. Have as much equality as you please, the more the better in our marriage laws. But at some level, consent to inequality, nay, delight in inequality, it is an erotic necessity. I think he's saying the fact that God makes us all different and the command that we submit one to another, it's not a curse. It's an erotic necessity called the kingdom of God. And hopefully you notice that this passage in Ephesians uh, starts with this phrase that describes what happens when we're filled with the Spirit of the Lord. Verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Verse 21, submitting, subordinating yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. You see, we're all to subordinate one uh, to another. So, so headship, headship must be a form of subordinating yourself a form of surrendering, a form of submission. So, so what is headship? Well, Paul has been telling us all along. Ephesians chapter one, verse 22, God appointed him head over all to be head of the church, his bride. 
Ephesians 1.10, this is the plan for the fullness of time. Anakephalio, to unite all things under one wounded head, one sacred head now wounded. We sing that song. Philippians 2, Paul writes, he emptied himself and made himself nothing. That's subordination. He made himself nothing. Therefore, God has highly exalted him to the head of the class. Jesus said this, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Well, Jesus is first, and he is the best at subordinating himself in love. The head leads by subordinating himself in love. Jesus is first because he chooses freely to be last. So without Christ, the whole world is hiding their inequalities in shame. Without Christ, the whole world is trapped in a cold war. No one truly gives Valentine's, so no one truly receives Valentine's Day, and Valentine's Day is a mockery, a mockery of love. Well, little Chad Thompson was like me. And so Valentine's Day was always very difficult for Chad. His mother, Ruth Ann, was a friend of ours, and Ruth Ann Thompson, you know, right, Becca? Friend of ours in, in California. And she told me this story about Chad. One year, Chad came to Ruth Ann. He said, this year, Mommy, I want to give a Valentine to every kid in my class. And that troubled Ruth Ann because she knew that Chad wasn't popular and the Valentines would not be reciprocated. And yet, she helped him. They worked really hard. I mean, Chad put himself into like each Valentine, body and blood, into each Valentine for each, each kid. On Valentine's Day, Ruth Ann waited for him with a knot in her stomach. She prepared a plate of cookies anticipating a little boy with a broken heart. When the, when the bus arrived, she watched intently as each Child got off the bus laughing and playing like usual and then her heart sank because as usual there was Chad alone and his hands were empty. Not a note, not a scrap. Tears came to her eyes as she ran out to meet him and when he saw her, he exclaimed, not a one, mom, not a one. And then he smiled and said, mommy, I did not miss a one. I didn't miss a one. When Jesus, our Lord, ascended from the garden in which he had been crucified by us on a tree, I picture his father running out to meet him holes from nails driven through his hands and feet, a brilliant wound in his side. And as a smile comes across his face, he says, not a one, Father, not a one. I didn't miss a one. I died for them all, Father, the sins of the whole world. I gave them all my gift, body and blood, fit for every wound, every hurt, every need. And so, Bride of Christ, do you see the difference? He has made himself last of all, slave of all, subordinate to all in love. You see the difference because, you see, he's like you and yet he's different than you. He is steadfast love that never ceases. He is mercy that never comes to an end and you're not. And that's why he scares you. That's why he frightens you. That's why we fear him, not because his love may come to an end, but because it will never end. He is love, and we are not. And yet, we will be. You see, we're a terrified bride on our honeymoon night, about to be filled with love and impregnated with life. So of course we're afraid. Verse 32, this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I think this is a more literal translation. Each of you must love his wife as himself in order that the wife may fear her husband. We're afraid of love. But if we submit to love, we will be filled with love and perfect love will cast out fear. And so he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. And in the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this is the covenant the covenant in my blood. Take and, and drink. So now you, you do know, right, that you are all unequal. And yet each of you is loved the very same amount. <laughs> And how much is that? With all that he is, his body and his blood. And so what are we so afraid of? Bride of Christ. We're afraid of his headship. We're afraid of this. We're afraid to be filled with him. And you see, he will not rape us. And so he romances us in this fallen world. What does he want? I think he wants his bride, empowered by his own spirit, to say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Now, you know we're going to a wedding feast, right? Do you know what happens at a Jewish wedding feast? They all gather together. I read this when we were studying the book of, of John because there's some texts in there. They gather together at, at a party, and then the groom and the bride go to a wedding chamber. And the, f <laughs> the friend of the bridegroom waits outside the door of the wedding chamber for the groom to call out to him, it's finished, the wedding's consummated, and then the friend of the bridegroom yells to the party, time to celebrate, and they party for a whole week, seven days. Well, here's a banquet, and it's like just a taste. I mean, we wait for that ultimate banquet, but maybe in this world, God will give us just a taste. And so as you come to the table, just say, come, Lord Jesus, fill me, Lord Jesus. I long for you, Lord Jesus. He loves to hear that. He's romancing you. You're his bride. So Lord Jesus, we offer ourselves to you we wait for you. Lord, there are some here that have waited all their lives and that they haven't been married and you use that to teach us about waiting and that waiting will not be in vain. Lord, we surrender our shame to you. There are some here that have incredible shame in this area, but even that will not be wasted for you fill those empty places with the knowledge of yourself. Lord, some here, they, they, uh, well, they have a very fulfilling relationship in these regards. Uh, Lord God, and that's just a taste. It's just a picture of who you are and what you have for all of us. And so, Lord God, as your people, as your bride, empowered by your spirit, we say to you, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, fill your temple, fill your bride, delight in us. For we're beginning to see, we're beginning to see that you are the good. You are good. Father, we say all this in Jesus' name. 
and the power of his spirit. Amen. Dark cup is wine. The light cup is juice. We invite you to come forward and um, worship. Call on him for his good. Oh, how I love you. Oh, how I love you. Oh, how I love you. So, Jesus, thank you for how you love us. We confess that we've taken you and chopped you up and tried to turn you into little things that we could put on our calendar, little snippets that we could apply to our lives, a religion that we could make work for us, and you keep loving us. And you keep loving us and you keep loving us until that great day when we see you coming again for your bride. And so, Lord Jesus, we wait for you. We thank you that even now you're here in your spirit and you touch us with your spirit. And so, Spirit of Jesus, we invite you to fill us and to keep on filling us like the apostle said be filled with the spirit and keep on being filled with the spirit singing hymns and songs and spiritual songs making melody to the lord always and for everything giving thanks in your heart and subordinating yourselves one to another in the fear the wonderful fear of the great bridegroom you are good Jesus. And we thank you. In your name. Amen.